anyone get faith? Where does faith come from? What is faith? Scripture tells us that faith itself is a gift of God. If salvation is about us, it is not a gift. It is a result of work. If God sovereign and sovereignly called me, then He has sealed me. Welcome to the teaching ministry of Heritage Baptist Church in Ashland, Ohio. Each week, we bring you expository and practical teaching straight from God's Word. And now, here's Pastor Ben. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I would invite you to turn with us to the book of 1 John. It's right in front of Revelation, so all the way back at the end of your Bible. And I want to look at something that I believe is a very appropriate and fair parallel to what it is we've been studying uh, through Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, last week, of course, Jared spoke for us and um, brought us a sermon as he's getting closer and closer uh, to the end of the book of James. And what I'm going to do today is use this passage from 1 John to amplify some of the truths that we have been looking at and analyzing in Ephesians 3. Next week, we will continue after the great um, segue that Paul makes is done. We'll get back into verse 14 next week with Ephesians. So, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 15, John records Jesus saying something very simple yet incredibly profound. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, I do not see any evidence in the Gospel of John or anywhere else in Scripture, in any of John's books, anywhere in the New Testament, that remotely suggests that we are free to pick and choose which commandments we actually follow and which commandments we ignore. In other words, when Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments, I think it is very safe to assume he means keep all of them, right? Fair enough? Okay. Yet sadly today, we're going to talk in 1 John about a commandment that is clear as day in terms of its meaning, but we tend to make it very muddy in its application. Far too many Christians struggle with the passage that we are about to read. So what I hope to do in the time that we have to look at Scripture today is talk about the correct context to understand this passage by looking at a few other verses in 1 John that will frame the passage. Secondly, I want to look at ways that this particular commandment is often ignored or minimized in the Christian community. And finally, I want to look at three reasons why this particular commandment must absolutely be observed by anyone who is serious about their faith. So read with me 1 John chapter 4. We're reading verses 20 and 21, the last two verses of chapter 4 of 1 John. John writes, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can that person love God, whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. Let's pray. Lord, we are about to be infinitely challenged as we break down the context of what John writes to the church here in 1 John chapter 4. 
we have become a comfortable and selective church in the West. We are used to having church the way that we want it and taking the pieces and parts of scripture into our Monday through Saturday lives only to the level that we are comfortable with. I pray, Lord, that you would rid us of these falsities and ideas that we have the ability to pick and choose which of these commandments to follow. Furthermore, as we dive deeply into this scripture this morning, my prayer is that your spirit would be at a convictional level working within our hearts and asking this singular question. What are we to do as a response to this information? We ask this in the holy and sovereign name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so let us begin here. In order to really understand what John is saying, it is essential that we have the correct framework for what it is he is teaching in the passage. This passage would be difficult if we just studied it on its own. The theology is not complex, but the teaching is difficult. Rather than look at this passage in a vacuum, I'd like for us to consider what happens right before in earlier in 1 John and what comes a little bit later. So let's look at some of these things. In the verses that we see immediately preceding, namely in 1 John chapter, um, this should be, uh, I'm sorry, we already looked at this. The Gospel of John chapter 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. But if we go in 1 John a little bit earlier to 1 John 2, Verse 4, it says, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So he who makes the profession, I know him, and does not keep the commandments, that person is lying and the truth is not in him. A little bit later in 1 John 3, John writes, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts his heart up from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And those of you who remember from years ago, when we went through 1 John, this word abide occurs over and over again in 1 John, and it essentially means to remain. How does the love of God remain in someone who does not use what they have been given in abundance to bless others? So I'm just going to make a quick point here that on these three verses, first, or John chapter 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, 1 John 2, 4, if, uh, if there's someone who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. And finally, 1 John 3, 17, but whoever has this world's goods sees his brother in need and shuts his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? If we look at those three verses, I think it's safe to assume the following three things. Jesus says keeping his commandments is how we demonstrate our love for him. In other words, we cannot love him without keeping his commandments. There is no option to say, I love God, but I am selective when it comes to choosing which of the commandments that he gives us I'm going to follow. The second thing that I think is fair to conclude is that John says we can't know Christ apart from keeping his commandments. In other words, there's no knowing God apart from obeying scripture. This has a lot of implications and applications. If there is no knowing of God apart from his scripture, what does that mean for the people who claim to know God but deny scripture or large portions of scripture? What does that mean? Rhonda? Their faith 
faith is not authentic? Yeah, they, they, they can't know God. They simply can't. There's no other way to read this verse. So somebody who says, well, I like Jesus as a teacher. I like him as a philosopher. I think he brings a lot of good to the table, but I don't believe that he was the son of God. That person has no wisdom because they're denying the essential tenets of the faith. So the spirit is not in them. So they are not able to discern. They are not illuminated. And therefore, they are not just limited. They are devoid of any real truth. And yet, our society again and again and again particularly celebrates people who have this magical ability to wield wisdom from Scripture and from the Bhagavad Gita and from the Quran and from the Jewish Talmud and put them all together and say, see, we're all pathways unto the same God. That is abjectly oppositional to what the Scripture clearly teaches. This isn't my opinion. This is just what Scripture says. This is very clear in Scripture. So the third thing that strikes us as well is that John says the love of God, uh, John says the love of God is not in the person that doesn't really help their brother in need. We must help a brother in need if we really love God. There is no choice when you make yourself a slave to righteousness. So with those ideas in mind, here's where we can go. John tells us in today's passage that the believer who says, I love God, but hates his brother, is a liar. These two things cannot coexist. Why is he a liar? It's not because he hates his brother. It's because he's not keeping God's commandments. How can he know God and yet, and let alone love God, if he will not keep God's commandments? Parents, how do we know that our children love us? It doesn't matter our kid's age. It's irrelevant. How do we know that our children love us? What is the evidence that our kids love us? Not all at once. Katie, how do you know that Sir Jack loves you? Um, just the little things that he does. Okay, examples. Um, and, and feel free to embarrass him. <laughs> My love language is caffeine. <laughs> but, um, I mean, just little things that we've taught him over the years that he just keeps doing. Say that again. Little things that we've taught him over the years he just keeps doing. I like that. Other parents? Andy? I would say that most of the time, um, and when you say he just... As an example, generally, even if she doesn't want to do it, she will listen and do things that we ask her to do. Mm -hmm. Even if it's not exactly what she wants to do or the greatest response, mm -hmm. she still has to respect to know, do those things, and follow directions. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, she submits to your authority. Yes. Yeah. So you set up rules in your household, and sometimes with less feedback than others, she will keep those commandments, right? That's how, that's how you know. That's how you know she loves you, right? Okay. There's a lot of parents chuckling who are like, there's no way I'm raising my hand. <laughs> so the question then becomes for us, where this leads us is here. Um, how do we see this commandment potentially being ignored or misused? Um, to answer that, we have to be careful and remember where we're drawing these truths from. So if we look at 1 John and what 1 John entails, here's some points to consider. 
1 John is a book written by the Apostle John to a group of Christians that he already knows and loves dearly. There's a lot of evidence in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John to suggest this is a church, it's a group of people that John either established or previously pastored. And we know this because one of the things that we see in his language is he continually refers to them as my little children. And it's not a derogatory term. It's like my beloved disciples. He's not saying, oh, you immature and young people. He's saying those whom I love and hold dear to my heart. The use of the word brother that we see repeatedly in 1 John strongly suggests that the the context indicates the commandment is to take care of others in fellowship, meaning the church. 1 John 3.17 applies to this idea. So when when this says, when this says, if you hate your brother... He's not talking about your enemy. He's not talking about your enemy. Now, the Bible does tell us to love your enemies. That's absolutely true. That's just not what John's teaching here. He's talking about the person who claims to love God and hates or does not serve or does not come to the rescue of a church member, another fellow professing believer in need. Okay? I'm not saying that we're not to love our enemies. That's just not what John is talking about in the context of this passage. So, ways that this command to love thy brother slash sister, your Christian brother or sister, ways in which this command is ignored by the Christian community today. What do you think? Ways in which we hate our brothers and sisters in Christ and yet claim to still practice the commandments and have the love of God. Shauna, I'm a little nervous, not the fact that your hand went up, more about how quickly it went up, but go ahead. Oh, just saying, God helps those who help themselves. That's a great scriptural saying, isn't it? (laughs) Isn't that a great scriptural saying? It is nowhere to be found in scripture. In fact, the idiocy and the lunacy of the statement, God helps those who helps themselves, spits in the very face of grace. Scripture is all about, you cannot help yourself. There is no help to be had outside of the grace of Jesus Christ, period. So, yes, and Shauna, expand that idea. Generally speaking, in your experience, when a Christian says God helps those who help themselves, what are they, what are they being critical of? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get back on the horse, work harder. Yeah, yeah. Is anybody else concerned along the lines of what Shauna is bringing up at the general lack of practiced grace that we have towards others in the church? Anybody ever struggle with a sin that became public and then the vast majority of the church treated you very differently after that? When I say church, I don't necessarily mean a local congregation, although it can be. I mean just believers. They'll never treat you the same way. They'll never look at you the same way. And there's a point at which that wears on the human soul to where the person says, there's no grace present. It's, it's very alarming to me. Uh, Jamie. So what do we do? We usually just ignore it, stop the conversation, maybe stop the friendship or the relationship in general. Conflict avoidance at all costs. Yeah, I don't see that anywhere in scripture. Kathy. Um, oh, I saw your hand. Well, that was one of my friends. Oh, okay. Um, dad, my dad was in World War II. And mm-hmm. 
I think they got being in their heads that you have to take you know care of yourself, or, because he was always that way. You know, you can't ask God for little things like that. You know, that that's just bothering God. He's got other things to worry about. Right, right. As if God's agenda is somewhat limited. Yeah. As if He has a finite amount of energy. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. There's a real danger in the difference of what Scripture says and the nomenclature of American Christian tradition. American Christian tradition is often not biblical at all. And all I ever ask you guys to do <laughs> is just read this with me, study this with me, and you will find yourself unlearning a lot of things that you thought were patently Christian. Uh, Robin, who's, I saw someone's hand back there. Oh, Jared, I'm sorry. The derogatory comments just made between uh, denominations is really rough. I just remember, I just remember a lot of situations where, oh, those Lutherans, oh, those that you hear that stuff. <laughs> this is what they think, this is what they do, and they're not, they don't do things right, you know, just yeah. a lot of judge, judgmentalism among the uh, yeah. different denominations. Yep, theological divisions become so great that we slander other professing believers. Yeah, and listen, I love to have fun. I love being made fun of by the denominations. It's one of my pastimes, and I love to make fun of my, my pastor. For, I used an example just today in Sunday school, making fun of Matt Timmons because he's wrong about baptism. Um, he said smugly as if he has it all figured out. So, you know, like Matt and I love each other. We, you know, we, we, they, they've used our church building when they were starting Hopewell. They used our building on Sunday nights. We have a few different theological uh, differences, but nothing that would ever keep me from helping a brother in need, and I know he feels the same way. So there's a difference between playfully teasing people you have a relationship with and slandering them on the basis of what you perceive to be their theological inadequacies. Brian. Uh, kind of circling around a couple of these uh, gossip and just whispering amongst ourselves, not the blatant open subversion, but quiet subversion. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I think maybe the two greatest designs of the enemy are gossip and TikTok. It's, it's the, idea, the idea that I'm coming to Jody because, hey, let me pick your brain on something. You know, Richard said something to me that really kind of upset me. Let me tell you what he said. Tell me if I should be upset. What does scripture say about what I just did? Not yeah, it's gossip. It's gossip. I am supposed to, Matthew 18, go straight to Richard. Straight to just the two of us. Do not involve anyone else and say, hey, I've got to be honest with you. What you just said, you know, it, it broke me. It hurt me. Why? Because if I go to Jody, I'm opening the circle up to someone who it does not apply to. Now, if I go to Richard and Richard says, no, you're wrong. I didn't sin against you. And I still feel that he has. Then I have permission to gather a witness or two. And maybe one of those is Jody and go back. But the idea is restoration and repentance. In that passage, Jesus says the only circumstance in which you bring that person before their church, before the church and thusly expose their sin to the church is if they will not repent and it's a last straw effort before you excommunicate them, remove their membership, and as, as the scriptures say, treat them like you would a pagan or a tax collector, which basically means treat them as if they're not a believer because they're unrepentant, so treat them as if they're not a believer. And that doesn't mean hate them. That doesn't mean be mean to them. It means you remove from them the privileges, rights, and responsibilities of things like authority, things like teaching, uh, things like voting uh, in, in a congregationally led congregation. All of those things, you can't do those things. You are in a state of non-repentance. You are not a member in good standing. Brandon. Um, another way we ignore this command is if 
you know, someone reaches out to us for help and claims to be a believer, particularly if we don't personally know them, they just come up to us on the street or something. Yeah. We think, oh, they just want money for drugs or they want money for alcohol. Yeah. And, you know, we think, oh, well, they don't need that money, but God kind of instructs us that it's better to be made a fool serving God than, Perfect. Protect your dignity. Yeah, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's rebuking the church at Corinth because they're suing each other uh, over land issues. You're on my property, I'm on your property. Let's sue. And they go to the Roman courts. And Paul's like, you guys are such morons. He's like, you're supposed to judge angels and you can't even work this out amongst yourself in the church with the council of the church. What does that say about your lack of wisdom? His solution to the problem is fascinating. He says, why not just be wronged? Why not just play the role of the sucker who got taken advantage of. God sees it. He's got it. Yet, oh, and boy, I'm, I'm preaching to myself more than anybody else in this room right now. How many of you, particularly men, the worst thing that can happen to you is for you to be taken advantage of? Like you got duped by someone and you're madder at yourself. Than, it's just your pride. It's your pride just, just absolutely messing with you. So if somebody in Brandon's scenario comes up and asks money, my, my instinct is, first of all, like safety and danger. Is this person in any way threatening me, threatening my family? But once I get past that, what, what are you really asking for? What do you really need? Mary and I, uh, back right, right before the, the lockdown hit, we got to spend an overnight up in Cleveland and we're staying in a really nice hotel downstairs. And the more Saturday morning we came out, and we were just standing outside the hotel and a guy walked by and I had my big like trench coat on, it was like my winter coat. And I never carried cash. And as I reached in my pocket, I had this, I, I felt, a, I had, a, I had a, a, a bill down there. And I very rarely carried cash. I was like, oh, I must have left that in there from something else. And this guy walks by and he says, excuse me, sir, can I talk to you? And I said, yeah, what's going on? And my wife had her arm around me and we weren't in danger. We were standing right in front of the hotel, but this guy was down on his luck. I don't know if he was homeless. I don't know what the situation was. But he started to tell this story about, well, I'm supposed to catch my bus and go to, because I'm trying to get over to the soup kitchen. And I just said, and I said, do you, do you just need breakfast? Do you need a meal? And he was like, yeah, that'd be great. And I just reached and pulled out the, the, <laughs> the bill. I didn't look at it. I didn't know what it was. I think it was a, Mary, do you remember? I think, I think, I think it was a 20. It was, it was more than I probably would have given in normal circumstances, but I, was that, I wasn't going to be like, you have change. <laughs> <laughs> Very quickly, my brain went, you didn't know you have it, and you don't know you're going to lose it. And so I just gave it to him. And, and here was the really cool thing. There were two reactions to that. Three. One was spiritual. But the first one was him just being like, thank you. And he's probably looking at me dressed well because Mary and I were going out to somewhere for breakfast. Or they were pulling our car around. We were checking out. So we looked nice, you know, uh, as nice as I can look. And... Um, and we're standing in front of this Hyatt Regency downtown. It's a nice hotel. Like he probably thought it was just disposable income to me, which of course it wasn't. But his eyes lit up, which is sweet joy. Thank you. Oh, no problem. Have a good morning, man. And that was it. And what I really was impressed by was my wife's response. She's holding my arm and she just squeezed it just for a second. And it was just like any, any thought of my manly pride that was about to suggest this guy just totally, he's gonna to go around the corner and buy wine or whatever he's gonna do, was erased by my wife's affirmation, you're willing to be made a fool of because of the greater good of serving and helping someone. And I don't share that story to lift me up as some you know, unbelievable philanthropic figure, but the spirit used my wife to, because I had mixed feelings. I was like, you know, I don't wanna be that guy but what is this money to me? It's, first of all, it's not mine. 
That's, let's just qualify that. That money is not mine at all. None of, none of anything that you have is yours. At best, we are stewards of what we've been given. And the point of what we've been given is to bring honor to God. So I am absolutely certain that the $20 that I handed this guy brought God more glory than me going home and sitting in my lazy boy and watching the Browns. I'm absolutely certain. Number two, we tend to qualify other believers as being like-minded before we'll decide if we help them. Right? We want to make sure that... Now, now listen, is there any scenario in which number two is a legitimate thing to do? Because I would argue there is. There are, well, Katie, give me one. Oh, okay, yeah. Certainly, or, or like, like someone who's not really of the faith, who's pretending to be of faith. How about this? A, a, a missions organization, and you, don't, you have some pretty stark things you disagree with in their theology. Are we apt to support them as a church when we're not really comfortable with how, what, what version of the gospel they're presenting? Mark, did you have a thought there? No, okay. So we tend to do this. We tend to qualify other believers before we will decide if we will help them. We tend to qualify them and say, well, if they meet my checklist, then I guess I'll, I'll, I'll give in. It's almost like we make someone go through a mental application in our hearts before we decide if, if they're worthy of our help. Number three, we roll our eyes, meaning we have bad attitudes, at believers who sing a different way, worship a different way, meet in a non-traditional setting like a home church or a beanbag chair church or a coffeehouse church. Not that I'm interested in any of those things, but that second to last one... <laughs> I'll be honest with you, that's kind of appealing. Um, so anyone who doesn't do things the way that we do things, we dismiss our own responsibility from serving them as a brother or sister in Christ. And at that point, we cease to be Christian and we start to be denominationalists. I'll help other Southern Baptists. And that's problematic too, because some Southern Baptists are freaking idiots. They are. They are. You're looking at one. So with every one of these things, we need to qualify them. We need to qualify them by the gospel. Any others, any others in ways in which we see this command to love, actively love, pursue love with a Christian brother or sister, any other ways that we see this ignored? This command is suddenly seen as optional. Mary? I think sometimes in the recent climate, the cultural divides that are rampant in our country, and especially in the Southern Baptist community, mm. I can't, I can't agree with that more. That's, that's absolutely, anything that makes us uncomfortable. And uncomfortable could be our location. I'm going to respond very differently to a gentleman walking up to me on the street in Ashland than I would in downtown Cleveland, right? Sometimes it's an ethnicity thing. Sometimes it's perhaps a religion thing. Uh, but anything that makes us uncomfortable, how do we react to that? Josh, you had a thought? I think uh, something that you know, used to go through my head a lot is, first and foremost, can I afford it? Can I press you a little bit on that? Uh, then you don't have a choice. I'm going to. Um, <laughs> I, sh I shouldn't have asked. Do you think that there's 
a wisdom and discernment that's fair if you're, and I'm not talking about being approached on the street. I'm talking about a missionary comes to you and says, hey, would your family support me to Uganda? And your response, do you think it's fair? Because this has been my response a few times, and I'm curious as to what you would say to this. Hey, listen, um, our, our missions budget, my family's, not my church's, my family's missions budget is all maxed out for the year. I definitely want to partner in prayer with you. Can you circle back to me at a later time? Because I have other financial needs that need to be met. Do you think that we have the, the ability to exercise wisdom or caution in that? Yeah, I guess my, I was going more of the spontaneous sure. giving, not you know, yeah. more of the missions. Yeah. I had a great seminary professor who was, a, at the time, I think he's deceased now, but at the time he was like the leading New Testament scholar alive. Um, and he gave this, he, he served for years outside of Minneapolis as a pastor before he retired into teaching at, at seminary down in Louisville. And he gave this example, which I thought was wonderful. He said sometimes he would be approached at the church in Minneapolis and would pull into his driveway and say, hey, I need money for gas or I need money for this or that. And his response was, well, let, let's meet that need. Um, follow me to the gas station, I'll fill up your tank. And he said for him, it was a way to, to verify and qualify that my money was going to be used in a God honor. Because there is a sense, I mean, admit this with me, there is a sense that where sometimes it's just easier to give them the $10 and not even ask. You know, not ask, not be concerned, not, you know, to have zero accountability. And so what Dr. Stein was saying in this context was ask them what the need is and meet that need directly. Um, that, that's, a way, that, that's a way to both hold them accountable and to honor God with whatever is going on there. Really good thoughts here. Anybody else have a, a chime in on I, this? I think the other part of that too, though, is sometimes, you know, to give an example, I uh, was helping someone in a situation that they didn't have a, a dryer. Okay. Their dryer's gone down, so their house was just covered with clothes. So I you know, sat down with Sean and I was like, hey, I, and I did not know these people one time, did not know them, they did not know me. Yeah. Went back and she's like, well, we should buy them a dryer. And it's like, I don't know what dryer they want. You know, I'm just going to give the money and go buy their own dryer. Ah. That was a week before COVID hit and he got unemployed. Wow. So would that dryer have helped? Yeah. You know, am I mad that he bought groceries with it and not a dryer? No, yeah. because I would hang my clothes in the backyard also. Right. <laughs> you know, so just something in my gut said, you know, I'm just going to give him money. Yeah. And, and lo and behold, that is why sure. you know, I had that good feeling. I have no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's a, that's a great testimony. I would just be cautious, and I don't think you did this there at all, Josh, but sometimes, if, particularly if we have the money, we give the money so that we don't have to deal with the issue. And sometimes what the Lord is telling us to do is to engage with the issue, engage with the need that is present. Rhonda. Well, like, I met a lady downtown one day she was you know she was homeless but she was up here visiting Ohio and um, she had said she was hungry and I could hear her stomach growling mm -hmm. but she smelled like alcohol so anyway I took her into the main moon and I bought her a couple of egg rolls mm -hmm. and I was like because you know if I had given her money Maybe she would have gone and gotten beer or yeah. something, you know. And you know, I wanted to make sure the actual physical need was being right, right, right. Yeah, no, I think I think that's I think that's appropriate. The other thing too is, 
in the process of taking her to the restaurant, now you have a chance for engagement. You're not just meeting the need, but you're hopefully you're engaging with her, figuring out what her story is, what's going on, if there's any ways that you can become involved in her life to the point of helping her. Brett, have some? I think uh, for me, my philosophy has always been that's the gift of giving. You know, I've always said, you know, I've been in many circumstances where you know, I've given money to the homeless. I've always heard people ask me, you know, aren't you afraid this guy's gonna go buy alcohol or drugs? Yeah. My philosophy is always is, and if I give it away, and then I worry about what he spent it on, I put a condition on that money. And so I remove the condition by saying, you know, it's really not my business. If the guy goes and buys wine with it or drugs or whatever, that's on him. But for me, I'm called to give myself away. And if we accelerate that even further to, to what Peter said in Acts 3, if you remember after Christ was crucified, Peter was at the gate, and there was a homeless man there. He asked Peter for money, and Peter told him, he said, I don't have any money or silver. Right. He said, but what I do have, I give you freely. Get up and walk. Yeah. And so in that circumstance, in that case, Peter was put in a scenario where he didn't have, actually have money to give. And I think what we get wrong most of the time is we feel, feel the guilt because do we really have the extra 20 bucks to get this person? Right? It's not the money. What we miss where the bus passes our bus stop is we think it's about the money. It's not about the money because what God actually gives us access to is further beyond money. So sometimes it's money. We have extra money to give someone, but in most cases it's how can I pray with you? Mm. Mm. How can I how can I become more engaged with you to find out really what's going on in your life? Yeah, give you yeah. something beyond money. It's not yeah. the money, it's how can I like your life? Yeah, I, 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 my heart echoes what you're saying, particularly in the regard of I don't want to be a minister. or Forget the fact that I'm a minister. I don't want to be a Christian who's simply symptom managing, who's walking up and down the streets handing out Kleenexes when what people need is, uh, you know, antibiotics, you know, medicine, instead of just a degree of comfort control. Now, sometimes the scenario and the situation, and we're kind of talking about this man coming up to you on the street scenario that we've probably all experienced, you don't have that level of, um, of time to engage. And that's fine, but oftentimes I think we have more time than we, than we think we do. Uh, and I feel like as people, as Americans who are abundantly blessed, I know I've been guilty of giving the money and my, in my mind, it's an easier thing to do because now I'm released from any responsibility. I've done what they asked me to do, so now I'm not spiritually bound to engage with them. And I don't think that's biblical. I think, I think I've sinned in those scenarios. Really, really good thoughts, guys. I'm really impressed. Um, let me close with this. Why must this command be observed? Well, John alludes to this. If we can't love what is seen and touched right in front of us, how are we ever going to love the unseen God? He says this exactly uh, at the end of verse 20. Um, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? The suggestion from John here is that it should be more challenging to love a God that we just can't openly dialogue and get to know the same way that we love another human. So in other words, John says there's a huge degree of faith 
Every time we pray that those prayers are being listened to, not necessarily answered, but just that there's an audience on the other end. And that's certainly what we've been talking about in Ephesians 3, where Paul's saying this is how we know there's an audience on the other side of this thing. So the first point that's brought up here is that how in the world it's easier to love another human because there's, you see them. There's a, there's, a, there's a touch, a physical reality. You see the reaction. You have the interaction. So he's asking a question. He's saying, how in the world can you not love your brother but then claim that you love a God? It's infinitely harder to love the unseen God than it is to just act in the most basic ways of service towards your brother right next to you. Uh, this brings to light a quote here from Matthew Henry that is just incredibly poignant. He says, the eye is wont to affect the heart. Things unseen less catch the mind and thereby the heart. The incomprehensibleness of God very much arises from the very fact of his invisibility. The member of Christ has much of God visible to him and in him. How then shall the hater of the visible image of God pretend to love the unseen original, which is the invisible God himself? In other words, how do you hate the creation? How do you not serve the creation, but then claim to serve the creator? There's, there's, a, there's a gap there. The second reason that we must observe this commandment is contextual. And it is that the fellowship of the local church must be unified in order to withstand the enemy. John is writing to a church in the infancy of its development. Christianity, as a religion, is roughly 1989 years old. This was written around year 60 of Christianity. At the time, there were not denominations, but we already see evidence in scripture of factions rising up over which pastors would be preferred. The Paul versus Apollos argument in 1 Corinthians comes to mind. There was one local church per city, Usually that church was hidden and underground and met in secret. So the idea of local church unity was a bit simpler than it is now. But regardless, the concept is the same. We must love one another as we profess Christ to create a stronghold to bind the enemy from our communities. Guys, of the Proverbs, 99% of them speak of fellowship being broken from within. We do really well. We galvanize when things attack us from the outside. Let me use a quick example. 9-11, right? We just celebrated the 19-year anniversary. Does that seem possible that it has been 19 years since 9-11? Do you remember the basic stage and tenant of national unity that was, it's not like we set aside all our differences, but we had a common enemy, right? And we, we unified and we put a lot of these differences aside. Jody and I were talking a few weeks ago about right at that same time was right when the Lord of the Rings movies came out and how overwhelmingly popular they were. And, and um, I just rewatched the Lord of the Rings uh, movies about four months ago with my kids. And my kids were kind of lukewarm on them. Uh, and Mary and I, we both had, I, this, this may be blasphemy, forgive me, but we were like, they're kind of dated. Like they're kind of like Brandon. I just lost Brandon. We're never gonna see. We're never gonna see him again. Like I, I say this, being shocked myself because I these are like great. But I remember just thinking they were kind of simple and a little. And they, they weren't bad. They were just a little overacted. And and I was talking about this with Jody, like how depressed I was that my kids weren't like yeah. And I was kind of like. Eh. And she said, "Well, remember the setting. These movies depicted a very clear picture of good versus evil." And in the last 10, 15 years, almost all good TV shows are the rise of the anti-hero, the bad guy that you're rooting for, 
right? Like two very quick examples that were very popular that come to mind would be like Dom Draper in Mad Men or um, Walter White in Breaking Bad. If you've seen either of those, these are bad guys that we kind of want to see how they get out of this situation, right? Um, back then, in the early 2000s, this was right and wrong, black and white, and the country had a, very, a much clearer picture. So when things attack us from the outside, we tend to galvanize. The church does the same thing. It's the same way I always use this example. If Satan were to come into our congregation, he would not kick down the back door and be wearing boots with spurs on them, dressed in all red with little horns, holding a pitchfork and being like, who wants to go to hell? Satan would look exactly like we do, would speak like we do, would dress like we do, would talk like we do, would be involved in the same things because the greatest threat to the church is from within the church. Something just happened there is from within the church. So right now our country is really jacked up and divided, right? We're really struggling with some things. And would you agree with me, regardless of how you feel about the pandemic, it has served as an amplifier for all of our issues, right? Nationally, we're in the midst of some really, really serious, tight, strenuous racial discussions and talks. And if we're falling apart, it's from the inside. It's a much more successful strategy to get us to corrode ourselves than to be unified against terrorists who are attacking our country. So John's warning here is that what is really crucial here is the fellowship of the local church and it has to remain unified. The last reason is that it simply isn't optional. These are commandments that are hard to follow. Loving your neighbor as yourself is not easy I'm sorry, it is easy, provided you have great neighbors. Anybody have a bad neighbor? Anyone have a bad next-door neighbor? Yeah, that's not fun. That is not fun. If you don't, trust me, that you can be a test of your faith and your obedience and how you illustrate patience with someone to your children. Loving other believers has pitfalls as well, but these pitfalls do not grant you or me or anyone license to ignore or even minimize these commandments. What are you going to say to God at judgment? I sort of made an effort to love my brothers. What if God were to say, well, I sort of made an effort to love you? Yikes. Would you agree that God was unbelievably demonstrating of his sacrificial nature of his love for us with what he did with Christ, right? And yet, if I'm being honest with myself, most of my service to others does not come from a place of sacrifice. It comes from a place of convenience. Thanks for listening to this message from Pastor Ben Roby and Heritage Baptist Church. We welcome your feedback or questions. You can find us online at hbc-ashland.com or connect with us on Facebook. If you found this message helpful, please share it with a friend or loved one. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again right here next week.